I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to the part of the scripture that we've already heard referenced this morning, and that is from Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. We're starting a new series today that's going to take us a few weeks to travel with a group of people who are going places. Uh, going places. How many of you this summer went someplace? Did anybody go anyplace? How many of you already are preparing for in the fall or maybe soon into the, the next few months to go someplace? Anybody got trips planned or destinations they're hoping to make? You know, we're all going places. We're all going places. Some traveling to places on vacation or places uh, for a weekend. But we're also all traveling in our life to a new place. Uh, the people of Israel, God's people, the Hebrew people, in the book of Exodus were going places. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to try to outline what got them in the place they started, but certainly they are going somewhere. The book of Exodus has in its title the word exit, exit from Egypt. Exodus is the exit from Egypt, and they were going someplace. They were moving from one phase to the next. And I think actually most of us, if not all of us, are going places. Not figuratively, but truthfully. You know, kids, we saw a good number of them this morning, and they're going back to school. They're getting a little older. Some of them are moving into the next school. They're moving into the next grade. And some of them will even be going off to college. They're going places. And if it's not children or students, there's young adults who are thinking about life change and thinking about moving away from parents and finding first career and maybe even someone to spend their lives with, going places. You got adults in every stage that are going through transitions and going through changes. I was told earlier this week that 60 is the new 40. Well, I'm 45. Does that mean I'm actually 65? Or does that mean I'm 25? I certainly don't feel like a 25-year-old, but I'm not so sure I'm ready to deal with being a 65-year-old. But those of you in your 60s, you're probably thinking, oh man, I'm gonna work longer. I'm gonna be doing things longer. I got bills to pay and kids who are still on the payroll. And man, at some point, I wanna go someplace. I wanna do some things. Even older adults, what I have found, when we think maybe they're at a stage of life where they've truly been settled, they truly have everything in place, you know what I find with a lot of older adults? Man, change is just as ever-present in their life. Uh, changes financially, changes with their health, changes with relationships, changes with feeling maybe a little bit more alone than they ever have before because of different dynamics with their friends and with their families. The only true constant that any of us experience is change. The only true constant is change. We're all going places. And that means that all of us are dealing with things that come with those transitions, that come with those shifts in our lives. And sometimes it's a good thing that it produces. Change produces good things. But could it be that also change produces some unwanted things? 
In the lives of the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, the Israelites, they are going through, in the book of Exodus, the most radical change you can imagine. They're shifting countries. They're shifting from slavery into freedom. They're shifting into under the rule of the Egyptians to being under God's rule. They're changing in every way you can imagine. And you would think this would produce good things. But what we actually discover is as they go through these changes, some pretty unfortunate things start to show up. And that's what we're going to focus on for the next few weeks. And we begin in Exodus 15, where the real first test comes available. And, and they don't respond well. But before we get to Exodus 15, I'm going to read verse 22 through 26. Can you, can you give me four minutes to summarize how we got to this place? I'm going to attempt to do a survey of Exodus 1 through 14 in four minutes. Can, can somebody put me on a timer? Let's do it. Let's go. Sean's got me. Here we go. So Genesis ends with Joseph in Egypt. Now, Joseph is one of the brothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. He is a son of Jacob whose name gets changed to Israel because of a famine the whole family has to leave Canaan, their homeland, modern-day Israel, and come to Egypt. Now, we know years before, Joseph had been sold into the slavery of Egypt, and, but God had done miraculous things in his life so that he goes from the jail cell to the palace of Pharaoh and becomes number two in the land, overseeing the care of thousands and thousands of people during a famine. Are you with me so far? Say, I'm with you. That's the end of Genesis chapter 50. It ends with Joseph bringing his family to Egypt. And things are okay for a while. But after a period of time, Joseph dies and the Pharaoh who knew Joseph died. And a new Pharaoh comes in and eventually we start seeing a thought come through the Pharaoh's mind, the king's mind of Egypt. If all of these people who are not original Egyptians decide to do something against the Egyptian authority, we could have a war on our hands. And even the word Hebrew, Hebrew, which is the name given to the people of Israel, has with it the word hapiru. Now that's an Egyptian word that means outsider or stranger. So you got the outsiders living amongst the insiders and the insiders starting to say, if they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, we're gonna have a problem on our hands. And so they put them in slavery. For 450 years, the Hebrew people are in slavery under the Egyptians, under the rule of the Egyptian slave masters. But even then, in the midst of all of this slavery, their number continues to expand such that they're now not 12 families or even 12 descendants of families. Now they're in the hundreds of thousands in population. The number keeps expanding and so another Pharaoh, some many centuries down the road, sides, oh, we need to thin this number out. So let's eliminate all males of a certain age because you know what baby boys turn into when they're adults? They turn into warriors and fighters. And so they begin thinning out the male population, particularly the baby boys. And one of those baby boys that was born to a Hebrew family, mama decided she wasn't gonna play this game. So she packed him up in a basket, sealed it up nice and tight, floated him down the river, and his name was Moses. Oh, you're with me. Are you still with me? How many minutes do I got, Pastor Sean? I got two more. Okay, we're doing great. 
Moses floats down the river and ultimately he's found by Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter opens the basket. Oh, little baby boy. She loves him, cares for him, calls him Moses, which means drawn out of the water, Moshe, and takes him into the palace. And even though slavery is still happening and even though Moses eventually figures out, hey, I'm not Egyptian, I'm Hebrew, he's living as a prince of Egypt. 40 years go by. And one day Moses is out on the job site and he sees a slave master beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And something clicks, something triggers, something snaps in Moses' mind. And he kills the Egyptian slave master with his bare hands and hides the body. He knows what he has done. He knows the penalty for doing such a thing. And so he flees out of there, 40 years of age. He takes off, leaves Egypt, the only home he's ever known. And he goes off to the far side of the wilderness to the land of Midian. Midian would be what we now know of as close to Saudi Arabia. He's out of there, gone. But he finds refuge in the house of Jethro. And Jethro has a beautiful daughter named Zipporah. And Moses likes what he sees. He marries Zipporah and they have They have children. 40 years goes by and he's a shepherd under the care of Jethro, his father-in-law. He's serving as a shepherd. But one day, Exodus chapter three, we're in chapter three. He is taking care of his sheep and he sees and hears a voice coming from a burning bush. This is all very new information for Moses. And the voice doesn't just speak to him. The voice calls him and tells him to return to Egypt so that he can free his people. And even the voice tells the name. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am, Yahweh. You shall go for me and free my people and bring them back to the land I have promised them. So Moses argues a little bit with God. That's a very, very bad thing to do. But eventually, He makes his way back to Egypt. He stands before Pharaoh. He knows who Pharaoh is. History doesn't tell us the name of Pharaoh, but history definitely describes this encounter, that there was a confrontation and plagues befall the Egyptian people because they will not let the Hebrew people go. 10 plagues, I could name them all. I used to do it by fingers, but now I'll skip that because I'm down to 30 seconds. Finally, Pharaoh relents, particularly after the plague of the firstborn. This is in Exodus chapter 13. And he says, you may go. Moses, take these people out of here. And as they go, they move further and further. And then the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, same translation in the Old Testament language. It's a body of water they can't get across. And now the Egyptians have changed their minds. They're coming after the Hebrew people with chariots and horses ready to wipe out this group of people. And what does God do? He's parts the Sea of Reeds, parts the Red Sea that the people can walk through on dry land. And as the Egyptians come into the water, all the water returns and now they're freed. (sighs) Can I take a breath? I just did 14 chapters of Exodus in hopefully four or five minutes. But 15, where we're beginning right now, is the day following. So I had to do all that to get you where you can understand what's happening. The first part of chapter 15, Moses is singing a song of celebration. He's singing a song of worship. And now the journey begins. Now the real journey begins. Now they're going places. And the first place they're going to stop is Mara. Is Mara. Listen to Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. 
And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord." Your healer. Now, geography matters. It matters to me and should matter to you because they're going to a place that's pretty harsh. Uh, Just a little map work here, I think, always makes for uh, our minds able to imagine things a little better. If you take a look here, you'll see Egypt is very green. Do you see that green piece of land there with the River Nile cutting through? You can see the arrows following the path of the people. They left the land of Goshen, the land of greenery, and eventually made their way out into the land of brown. That's the only way I can describe it. They left water and vegetation and things that make people feel good into a land that's very, very harsh. Three days, it says, that they traveled into this land. And if you zoom in here, you'll see in this next picture that they're just in the land of brown. It's no longer green. There's no water to be found. There's no rivers or lakes to be even picked up on. They're in the desert. And I've actually been in this exact place in the world. I took a picture of it several years ago. This is what it looks like 360 degrees. Uh, Jennifer and I, some 20 years ago, actually followed the path of the Israelite people as they traveled south. And I'm in a tour bus, air conditioned, with the Coca-Cola. And I don't feel so great about myself. Can you imagine this is all you see Day in and day out, brown upon brown upon brown, you're walking, you're sweating, you're thirsty, you're hungry. Uh, Some estimates have there's 750,000 Israelite people. The high estimates are something like 4 million Israelite people. There's only 4 million people in the state of Kentucky. Can you imagine the entire state of Kentucky walking together for three days in this? Do you anticipate there might be a little bit of friction from time to time? Might be a little, little people getting upset. But the scripture says that they spend three days walking, leaving what they knew behind, and eventually they run out of water. They run out of water. And what happens? As they're moving forward, bitterness begins to spring up. Bitterness begins to come forth. Three days, the scripture says, in the wilderness and no water. Three days in the heat. Three days in the wilderness. Three days after seeing God's powerful hand at the Sea of Reeds, at the Red Sea. Just three days after leaving Egypt and finding this new path they're on. Three days and they're already experiencing some bitterness. They're experiencing some 
problems. They get to the water source that they are anticipating, the well of Mara. They get there and the water is bitter. Verse 23 says, And when they came to Mara, they could not drink the water because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And this is, this is both a play on words and also a clear description of what they're going to find. They get to the well that they're hoping to find. Three days, three days, no water. And when they get to the well, they find the well is bitter. Now, let's just be honest. Everyone who lived in that region knew the water was bitter. And how do we know that? Because they named the well bitter. <laughs> it, it, I mean, do you get the play on words? The water doesn't taste good, so let's name the well the water that doesn't taste good. It's Mara, it's bitter. The water has always been bitter, the always been undrinkable. So anyone who comes to this knows we're at a bitter well. Let's name the well Mara because Mara means bitter. But there's also something happening here with the people. Verse 24, they get to this well, the one place they think they can drink. And when they taste it, it's bitter. And so they begin grumbling against Moses. Do you know the Hebrew word for grumbling is Mara. They're at the Mara well. And they're Mara-ing to Moses. It's a double meaning. It's a double play of Description. The water is certainly bitter. The well was always called the bitter water well. It was always labeled as such. But the language also says, and now the people are maraing at Moses. And it's all in this. There's bitterness, there's grumbling, there's complaining. Some will even say there's murmuring, they're divisive, they're they're jealous or angry. There's all of this inside of the term Mara. Because when people go from one stage to the next, when you and I experience change and things don't work out exactly as we hoped, there can be produced grumbling, complaining, resentment, anger, jealousy, grumbling. We don't always get what we want as we're going through these changes and through these seasons of new experiences and one of the unfortunate outcomes is we get agitated we get frustrated we become very put out and that can begin forming bitterness in our hearts if you've ever gone from one season of life to the next and everything was roses and rainbows everybody was happy and giddy and there was no fussing there was no tragedy there was no anger there was no resentment I will call you a liar because that's usually right below the surface. And sometimes it's not spoken out loud, sometimes it's not mentioned, but there inside of the heart can come a, a bitterness about change, a bitterness about the new season, a bitterness about where you're going, a bitterness about what you're having to go through. And sometimes it's bitterness about the past, but it's often bitterness about the present. It can be bitterness toward other people. It can even be bitterness toward God. I have seen people and watched people and have experienced myself 
as we're going through seasons of change, right below the surface is a murmuring, a grumbling, a complaining, a bitterness, a resentment, an anger, agitation. And just as it was then, it is now. You know, bitterness is serious business to God. Your heart is serious business before God. God had shown those people miraculous works. He had shown them his power, his provision, his care. And yet three days into their journey, they're already bitter against Moses. They're angry. We got no water. We got no hope. God must have left us abandoned. Even if you read a little further, they will cry out, God, did you just want us to come out here and die? How quick, how quick they have lost faith in a God who had worked so many things in their lives. And they begin grumbling and complaining. And that's serious business. Because it jeopardizes our obedience to God. It jeopardizes our understanding of his work in our life. It allows us to forget what he has done and it allows us to see only our self-focused issues and needs. Bitterness is serious business. And I think that's why in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul links bitterness to a whole slew of things that can come from the heart. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32 says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted." Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Bitterness is wrapped together with anger and wrath and clamoring and slandering and being malicious toward others. It's lumped together with many things that we would never ever want to aspire to or to have filling our lives and our hearts. And he says about this kind of thing, you got to put it away. You got to cut it out. You've got to rid it from your heart and from your life. It's got to be dealt with because I know, and I think you would agree, unchecked bitterness is a root that grows. Unchecked bitterness is a root that grows. And the author of Hebrews says as much. In Hebrews 12, 14, and 15, he says, Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Listen to this. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, that root, many become defiled. It's a picture of a weed in a garden that's right below the surface right below the ground level. And it starts to spring up, starts to poke through, starts to find its space in the garden. And it causes all kinds of trouble. 
causes all kinds of problems. It causes all kinds of issues. It begins stealing the nutrients and the water from the other vegetables of the other plants and flowers. It begins taking root and growing and spreading. Bitterness that's unchecked is like a root that festers and grows and expands. And if you leave it, if you leave it unchecked, if you leave it uncut, if you allow it just to continue, it's where we get the phrase harboring bitterness. It's like a harbor with boats that have pulled from areas far and wide and they're just living there in the harbor. And every single one of us have the potential to have this bitterness in our hearts and it's just harboring and harboring and festering and growing. And when it's not dealt with, friends, it causes all kinds of trouble. It's a reminder that we gotta cut it out. We got to deal with it. We got to put it away. When the people of God began to show their grumbling, bitter hearts toward Moses, he cries out to the Lord. What is the first step in dealing with bitterness? It's crying out to the Lord, it's laying the bitter heart before him. It's laying the feelings, the anxieties, the issues before him. It's laying the trouble that it's causing before him and allowing God to begin working. He began working for the people. Moses cries out and God turned bitterness to sweetness. God turned bitterness to sweetness. Verse 25 says the Lord after Moses cries out, sees and shows him a log, just a stick, just a piece of wood. And he instructs him to throw it into the water. And the water is miraculously changed. The bitter water is now drinkable. The bitter water is now sweet. The water that was absolutely unuseful for their purposes is now ready to be used and given to millions of people possibly. It's all sweet. And God then sets before them an instruction. It's in this verse 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of God, if you will do what is right in his eyes, if you will give ear to his commands and obey his statutes, the Lord will bring about a healing in your life, bring about a transformation in your life. Verse 26, for I am the Lord, your healer. Do you notice the direction of the Lord's work. He sweetened the water, but he's referring to his work among the people. He dealt with the problem that they were facing, no water to drink. But truly, the work that is most evident is not in the water that's now drinkable. It's the work that's now among the people that he has healed. God can take a heart that is raggedly ravaged with bitterness and he can begin to heal it and transform it. And I could give you an example after example, but I think probably the one that's most relevant to me is from my very own life. I've shared just generally uh, that my mother abandoned my family when I was 12. It's the last time I laid eyes on my, my mother. I haven't spoken to her in probably 20 years. To this day, I don't exactly know where she lives. 
and I couldn't pick up the phone and call her even if I tried. And when you're 12 years old, because of addiction to alcohol and problems with all sorts of marital relationships, when your mother abandons you, my brother and I, not just me, that can begin a seed of bitterness that grows and grows and grows and grows. I spent the better part of my teenage years with this anger. This, this, it's beyond being upset. It's blaming. It's resentment. And eventually the bitterness goes from being a feeling to a numbness and a numbness to a harshness and a harshness to just this whole some 10 years go by. I'm in my 20s. And any time a Mother's Day comes up, I just get this hole in my heart. Anger. Even a sense of rage. I didn't have a mother in the home. I didn't have a mother to be at my graduation day. My wife, who I've been married to for 20 years, has never met my own mother. My grand or my sons, her grandchildren, have never met their grandmother. And that can be a hard root of bitterness. And as I was studying God's word in my personal devotion one day, I came across that Ephesians 4, verse 31. And I recognized all the descriptions of that passage were living in my heart toward my mom. Bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, clamor, malice. It was all right there. And the scripture says, put it away. Cut it out. Lay it before the Lord. And ask for him to do a heart surgery. And I can testify to you today, brothers and sisters, through the miraculous power of God. And it wasn't instantaneous, but it certainly felt that way. When I truly tried with as much sincerity in my heart just to lay that before the Lord and say, you got to do something in me to get rid of this. I felt the presence of the Lord speaking and laying some piece of God on me that gave me the ability to seek forgiveness. Now, the relationship isn't restored. I can't say that there was something that followed after that like a miraculous prodigal son returning and an embrace. There's really nothing that has transpired. But I know in my heart, the bitterness doesn't live there anymore. The anger doesn't live there anymore. The resentment doesn't live there anymore. And slowly but surely, even though there's no physical relationship, love for her began to return. That's the power of God who can take bitterness and transform it into sweetness. And I wonder if any of you would be like me some years ago would say, God, I need help with this area. I need help with this part of my heart. I need help with this part of my life. And I'm just going to lay it before you like Moses throwing a log in the well. You're just going to lay it before the Lord. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. 
And I'd like the praise team to join me if you can. Bitterness to sweetness. Maybe this morning you would just come before the Lord and say, truthfully and honestly, you, you know, Lord, where I'm at. You know what's in my heart. You know what feelings I have, what hurt I've gone through. And you just want to lay it before him. Like throwing a log into a well, you just want to lay it before him and allow the healer to begin healing that which is inside. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song called Run to the Father, and it's about running to Him. And that's certainly the invitation this morning. It's recognizing what exists, what lives below the surface, and it's laying it before Him, asking for His transformative power. If you need to come to this altar, you are invited to do so. The invitation will be extended to any. If you want someone to pray with you, I would be happy to do so, but certainly lay whatever is on your heart before the Lord today and be confident that he will do a good work to transform your heart and heal the brokenness that you experience. Father, we come to you now in this spirit of stillness and silence, and I pray that your spirit would work turning bitterness to sweetness, taking the well of our heart making it sweet with love and forgiveness. Lord, whatever you need to do today, we invite you to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.